I hope you are enjoying our series, Blood, Boils and Blessings, Finding Jesus in Leviticus. And I hope you find that you are finding Jesus in Leviticus. And that even this book, which can seem so odd and old and obscure, actually is full of wonderful gospel truth and wisdom to give to us. And we found that this is a book about God and humans dwelling together. And it reveals to us God's very heart, that God wants us. God wants us to live in intimate relationship with him and for us to experience true life, the very best life, through that relationship with him. And you might remember we've been following kind of a pyramid structure. There's like a kind of a a shape to Leviticus that we're looking at in this series, represented in our series graphic here. And so far we've gone up the side of the pyramid, which focuses in on that key question, how can imperfect people dwell with a perfect God? Well, today we reach the very middle, the top, the pinnacle of the pyramid, those two goats, we reach the Day of Atonement, the very center point of the book of Leviticus. Some people reckon the very center point of the whole first five books of the Bible, the day when God and humans have the the moment of kind of greatest connection and intimacy in dwelling together. And the Day of Atonement is a bit like a spring clean or a deep clean. And this is something I feel I can kind of relate to. I will confess to you, I do not like cleaning. And I can say this more easily in Bexhill, because my, uh, no, here than Bexhill, because my landlords are in Bexhill, so I have to kind of tailor this bit back when I do it there. I do not like cleaning. So I clean when I see that cleaning needs doing. When I see there's some dusting that needs doing, or I see uh, that there's some um, hoovering needs doing, I will do it. But the reality is, over time, there are things I don't notice which kind of build up. And so there gets a point where I have to do a spring clean or a deep clean to do all the stuff I've, frankly, overlooked. Well, the Day of Atonement is a bit like that. It's a bit like a spring clean, a bit like a deep clean. Because the people of Israel also needed to do some cleaning. They, over time, got a load of mess from their sin, their rebellion against God. And this ritual impurity, this stuff that Paul talked about last week, and they needed to clear that up to deal with their imperfections so that they could dwell with the perfect God. Because we know the big problem, the big risk, was that their sin and their impurity, if it met the perfect holy God, would result in death. So they needed to do some cleaning. And so as they became aware over time of their sin, of their impurity, they'd do some sacrifices, like we talked about a few weeks ago. That was a bit of on-the-go cleaning. That's when I noticed I need to dust or I need to hoover. But over time, there were things they didn't notice. There were things they didn't realize they'd done wrong, which were building up, causing all this uncleanness in the camp, polluting them, polluting God's house that they had to deal with. They had to do some spring cleaning, a deep clean. And that's what the Day of Atonement was about. The Day of Atonement was about dealing with the dangerous position they lived in, that there was some stuff they were doing wrong they didn't even notice, and that was very dangerous because the perfect holy God was dwelling with them. The Day of Atonement is God's gracious provision to deal with the accumulated, unnoticed sin and impurity among the Israelites. It cleansed them and cleanse the camps that God and they could dwell together. So we're going to unpack a bit of what happens in the Day of Atonement and what it can teach us from Leviticus 16. And we're going to ask, where can we find Jesus in this? So Leviticus 16 starts, actually, with a reminder of the problems that need to be solved. The fact that, actually, for God and humans to dwell together is, in many ways, a very dangerous thing. 
Because for the imperfect and the perfect to meet is dangerous and can so easily lead to death. That accumulated sin and impurity was a dangerous position for them, and that's what God reminds them and warns them in the first two verses. And as we read these, listen out for how much mention of death and dying there is and the great problem that needs to be solved. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. God's saying there's some serious risk here. He first reminds them of something that's happened a little bit earlier in Leviticus 10. When two priests, two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they come to God's tent, they go to draw near to God, but they don't follow God's instructions for how to do that. They don't deal with their imperfections, they draw near to the perfect God, and fire comes out from God and consumes them. It's a very dangerous thing for imperfect people to dwell with a perfect God, and we're reminded of that here to remind us why this day is so important. And then God starts talking, and he reminds Moses of that. He says that Aaron can't go into what he calls the holy place behind the veil. So remember, God is dwelling in the middle of the camp, in the middle of all the people, and in the middle of God's tent, the very heart of the tent, is this holy place covered off by a, uh, a um, curtain where God himself was dwelling over the Ark of the Covenant. He's kind of enthroned there. That's his throne in this tent. And God says, Aaron, even Aaron, the high priest, the most holy person in the community, even he cannot go in there. Why? God says, because I will appear in the clouds over the mercy seat. He can't go in because God is there, and that is a dangerous thing. The background to this whole day is the problem of death. And what's so interesting, though, is that the chapter doesn't stop there. Quite a simple command. Tell Aaron not to come in. It's not safe. End of chapter, you'd think. But God goes on. Verse 3 but in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. So there is actually an opportunity for a human to go into where God really is. There's an invitation, and God goes on to outline how that can actually take place. And we might sit there thinking, well, why would God say, don't do this, but this is how you do this? Isn't that a bit of a weird way of approaching this? But actually, I think if we're beginning to get the hang of the book of Leviticus, that isn't so odd. Because we know in the book of Leviticus that there's this big danger of God and humans living together, and yet God longs for humans to live with him. Even though it's dangerous, he's going to make a way for it to be possible. This invitation is once again showing us God wants us. God wants us to be in relationship with him. And so if it's so dangerous, how can it become safe? How can it be okay for Aaron to enter in. Well, that's when we come to what you do on the Day of Atonement. And there are three key things which we'll read about in verses 6 to 10. This is what they did on the Day of Atonement. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat in which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. 
But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. So there's some ceremonies here involving animals, and all of them, you'll notice, are about making atonement, which is about dealing with this risk, this problem of death. You might remember if you hear a few weeks ago when we talked about sacrifices, atonement was at the center of the whole sacrificial system. It's all about dealing with the people's imperfections, the things that separated them from God and created this dangerous situation. It's about receiving cleansing, receiving forgiveness so that people can draw near to God. And what happens in atonement is God sets the ransom price that people can pay to rescue themselves out of that sentence of death. He says what they can pay, as it were, to buy themselves back. And he says an animal life can be accepted in place of their life. That though they deserve death for their sin and their impurity, God will receive instead the death, the life of an animal in their place. He will accept a substitute for their life, an animal for them. And you might remember the reason that blood is so common and central in this book is because blood represents life. And a life needed to be given to make atonement. And so first, Aaron does that. He takes a bull and he makes atonement for himself and for his family so he can do all this stuff. But actually, at the center point of the Day of Atonement are these two goats. The two goats from our little icon. A goat for God and a goat for Azazel, which we'll come to and explain. And these two goats helpfully give us insights into different aspects of this thing of atonement, of dealing with our imperfections. And so the goat for God becomes a sin offering. You'll find the instructions for this in verses 15 to 19. And Aaron would take the goat, he'd go through various sort of ceremonies with it. He'd kill the goat, and he'd take some of its blood. Remember, the blood represents the life that's been given. And he takes that, and he goes into God's tent. And he goes through the veil into the very heart of God's tent, the, the most holy place, the place where God was enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant, and he takes from his blood and he sprinkles it on the side of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat which covered it. And we can kind of overlook how significant this is. We think, okay, yeah, big deal. He's going through a curtain. What's the big deal there? But we've got to realize this is the only time once a year that one person gets to go into the place where God has most chosen to manifest himself. The very heart of God's home among the people. We've got to remember that little part of the tent represented was a picture of the Garden of Eden, the place where God and humans were always meant to dwell together in life-giving relationship. When the priest goes through that curtain, it's humans going back to how things were always meant to be, going back into the Garden of Eden, and the priest is there representing the people. This is Israel dwelling in intimate relationship with God, This is the most significant moment of the whole year for the people of Israel. To this day, Jews refer to the Day of Atonement simply as the day. It is so important. It is the day above any other day. In this moment, the high priest, through the atonement made through the blood of the goat, is entering in and communing, uh, being in relationship with God, and through him, all the people are doing the same. And then he comes out of the tent, and he takes some of the blood of the goats and also the bull that he'd sacrificed for himself, and he throws it on the altar, which you might remember was a platform 
similar size to this, a platform used to give things to God. You'd burn the sacrifices on the altar to give them to God. And they were cleansing that so all through the year they could continue being in relationship with God through the ways that he had opened up to them. The goat for God reminds us that atonement is about a life being given in place of a life, about a substitute standing in place of the worshipper being accepted for them so that they can draw near to God. But then also there's another goat. There's the goat for Azazel. And you might reasonably be asking then, who on earth or what on earth is Azazel? And the honest truth is, we're not quite sure. It may be a name. It may be a name for some sort of evil power that was believed to live out in the wilderness. Because this goat gets sent out into the wilderness. And so it might be that the goat gets sent out to this evil power, Azazel, not in the sense of making some uh, sacrifice to impress or to give something to that evil power, but in the sense of showing contempt to it. The goat took all the imperfections of the people out to Azazel to show contempt to it. Or the word might mean something like the goat that goes away. That's a potential meaning of the Hebrew here. The kind of concept of a scapegoat. And this is actually where the concept of a scapegoat comes from. Either way, what it does and what it means is clear, even if the meaning of Azazel itself isn't. And we get some instructions in verse 20 to 22. The high priest would take this goat, would put his hands on the head of the goat, and would confess over it all the sins and imperfections of Israel. All their imperfections were being symbolically put onto this goat so that he, the goat, represented them and represented all the stuff they'd done wrong and all their impurity. And then the goat was taken out of the camp and taken far out into the wilderness and released to go off, never again to be seen. Verse 22, the goat shall bear all their iniquities. It's going to carry them on itself to a remote place. And you shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. What's going on here? Well, the goat is symbolically taking away, carrying away the sins and the impurities of the people of Israel far, far away, never to return again. And you kind of, kind of imagine how powerful that had been if you'd been there in Israel, in the camp, and you watched this goat take upon itself all the things you've done wrong, all the things that separate you from God, and then you watch the goat get taken out of the camp, and you watch it go far, far off in the distance, away and away, further and further, until you can't even see it again, and you know it's never, ever coming back. This was a powerful picture for the people of what God was doing taking their sins away, never for them to be brought back, never for them to be remembered again. It's a picture of what we later get in Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, which is basically as far as you can get, they're never going to meet, so far does he remove our transgressions for us. They are taken away, never to return again. And so this goat, the goat for Azazel, is experiencing what the people should experience. For sin leads to separation from God, well, here, this goat, on behalf of the people, is being separated from God and where he is. Just as Adam and Eve were sent out of the Garden of Eden when they sinned, so the goat carries the sin of the people out of the place where God is dwelling among the Israelites. He is separated from God so that the people don't have to be separated from God. The goat for Azazel, or the scapegoat, reminds us that atonement is about sins being taken away, never to return a substitute being separated from God in place of sinners who should be separated from God. 
So the Day of Atonement is all about this solution to the problem of this risk of death in these two forms of atonement, these two ways of dealing with sin. We show two aspects of how God allows us to be free of sin and to be in relationship with him. The goat that goes to death as a substitute for the death they deserve, and the goat that goes away is separated from God as a substitute for the separation that they should experience. And together this day, all these ceremonies deal with all that overlooked, accumulated, unnoticed sin so that the Israelites, the imperfect people, and God, the perfect God, can dwell in relationship together. And then we might ask, well, that's all very good, but what about Jesus? Where does he fit in? And actually, if you read this chapter, a good question you might ask is, well, at the end, it's really clear this should happen every year. Every single year, this should be done. Well, how come we're not doing it every year now? And actually, those two things come together. How Jesus fits in explains why we are not doing this every year now. Because Jesus has enacted a greater once and for all day of atonement. Jesus came and he became both our high priest and also our sacrifice for sins to enact this ultimate day of atonement. We read about this in the New Testament. And the letter written to the Hebrews, chapter 9 of which is mostly about how Jesus fulfills the day of atonement, we're told about this thing of Jesus becoming a high priest, taking his own blood as a sacrifice before God. Just read a couple of verses from verse 11 of Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made of hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus comes and he acts as high priest, the one who mediates, who stands between us and God. He represents us before God. And just as the high priest went into God's tent on the Day of Atonement, Jesus has gone into God's tent. But not a a tent down here, not a dwelling place down here. Actually, the tent in the middle of Israel's camp was always just a picture for God's true dwelling place, his heavenly throne room. The high priest on the Day of Atonement went into God's tent on earth. Jesus, after his death and resurrection and ascension, went into the heavenly throne room of God. And just like the high priest went into the tent with blood, Jesus has gone into the heavenly throne room with blood. But not the blood of a bull or a goat or things that have to be doing time and time again because an animal is not really a fair match for a human. He has gone with his own blood. Blood that can truly be a substitute for your life and my life. Blood that can truly deal with our sins and he has presented it to God. He's presented his life to God as a substitute in place of our lives. And in so doing, Hebrews tells us, he has secured, he's made available and made certain an eternal redemption. Redemption is like atonement. It's being bought back. It's being rescued and saved and forgiven. It's an eternal redemption. It is complete and lasting. It cannot change. It cannot be taken away. Jesus has completely and lastingly dealt with our sins and our imperfections. And he doesn't have to keep on doing this because it was a one-time thing. In a one-time thing, he has paid the pricing for, he's done the job. That means, if you're a Christian here today, if you are united with Christ, your sins do not build up unnoticed to you. 
Your sins are not there unnoticed, building up, and God's getting angrier, and there's this danger and this threat against you. If you're a Christian here today, your sins are never, ever counted against you because of what Jesus has done. They've been taken away as far as the east is from the west. God has said he will never bring them to mind again because Jesus has paid the price in full. And what the scapegoat, the goat for Azazel, represents on the Day of Atonement is also true in what Jesus has done. Jesus has taken our sins away. God isn't going to call them back to mind. He's not going to bring them back. They're not going to sneak up on us one day. They are taken away far from the distance, never to be returned again. And all this means that you and I, if we are in Christ, can draw near to God. We can dwell in intimate relationship with him. And actually, the amazing thing is we no longer have to go to a tent in a camp somewhere to encounter God. We've been made so perfect by Jesus that now we are the place where God dwells. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwells inside of you. We are now the place on earth where God most powerfully dwells all possible through what Jesus has done. Friends, this is wonderfully and unchangeably true of you this morning if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this can be true of you. This is a free gift, an offering invitation that God extends to every person that God wants to give to you today. And and let me just say, if that is you, don't leave without finding out more. Come and talk to someone afterwards. Come and ask some questions. Come and probe and explore this invitation that God is extending to you. We're going to respond this morning by taking the bread and wine, remembering the sacrifice that Jesus has made before he took his blood before God fast. Remembering his body broken, represented by the bread. His blood shed for us, represented by the wine, just as Jesus has commanded us to do. In remembrance, in thanksgiving, to commune with him and to commit ourselves again. Hopefully as you came in, you got a little pot of bread and wine. If you didn't and you want one, stick your hand up and some stewards will keep their eyes open and they can bring one to you if you need one. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd ask you not to take part in taking the bread and wine. It doesn't mean anything to you. And this is a meal of commitment to Jesus for those who have committed to Jesus. But please don't feel self-conscious or uncomfortable about that. There'll be others doing the same, so there's no need to worry about that at all. Maybe the band could help at this point. Thank you. I thought we'd approach bread and wine today through confession. You know, the Day of Atonement actually was a very somber day. If we read a bit more chapter 16, we'd find the people were told to afflict themselves, which means they would fast and they would confess their sin. And it's a, a day to realize the seriousness of sin the seriousness of that problem, while also receiving God's forgiveness and his reassurance. And we too in Scripture are encouraged to confess our sins and to receive the encouragement or the um, forgiveness and the reassurance of our sins, forgiveness of sins. So we're going to say a prayer of confession together. Some words I'm going to say that will be on the screen. I invite you to say them with me. We're going to just pause for a moment of quiet. It might be the Holy Spirit highlights specific things we feel we need to confess of. And then we'll have a chance to sing and to give thanks for the sacrifice of Jesus. And as we do that, we can take the bread and the wine and receive that forgiveness and that reassurance. Shall we stand as we engage with God? Just quiet our hearts before him as we prepare to come before him and to take the bread and wine. Feel free to pray these words with me as we pray together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have wandered and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. 
we've offended against your holy Lord. We have left undone those things that we ought to have done, and we have done those things that we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But you, O Lord, have mercy upon us sinners. Spare those who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent. According to your promises, declare to mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may live a disciplined, righteous, and godly life for the glory of your holy name. Amen. Let's just pause for a moment. Grant, we ask you, merciful Lord, to your faithful people pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.